Thank you and welcome to Scripture on Creation. I'm Scott Kump. And I'm Dr. Ben Scripture. Dr. Scripture, about a decade ago, you did a series on creation in the book of Job. Mm -hmm. Since that time, we've done several other series, and now you've decided to revisit Job. Yes, Scott. Now, I know there are a number of longtime loyal listeners to Scripture on Creation who heard many of the programs in that series so many years ago. But I also know we have a whole lot of new listeners. Yay! And this will be new material for them. And there's something else I've learned through the many years I've been teaching and preaching, Scott. What's that? Most of us forget most of what we hear fairly quickly after hearing it. So even though we'll be discussing much of the same material as we go through Job again, I'm certain in most instances it will come as new information for us all. And it never hurts to review. That's for sure. But, Dr. Scripture, I don't think you should underestimate what people do retain. I mean, I think many of those who have been listening through the years have an understanding about various passages or statements in Job that if they could recall where or how they learned it, they would acknowledge that it was through the Scripture on Creation program. Well, that's an encouraging thought, Scott. Good. And it's always a joy for me personally when I get appreciative comments from those I've taught. However, I can sincerely say my desire for Scripture on Creation Ministries is that people simply come to a better understanding of God's Word, and in particular, God as Creator, not remember and or give Ben's Scripture some kind of credit (laughs) for what they've learned. And Scott, I won't leave you out of this consideration. You're an important part of the Scripture on Creation radio program. Well, thank you. And many people also express to me their appreciation for what you do. Okay, so with all that said, you're going to begin with a kind of summary introduction to the book of Job today. Yes, and how to start. There's so much to say about Job. And in order to understand what can be a confusing book sometimes, setting the background and explaining the literary form the book is written in is crucial. So that's where we'll start. We'll talk about the form the book is written. Scott, you said people remember more than I might think when it comes to what they've learned about Job. Yeah. So let's see what you have stored away in your memory banks. Oh, no, I may regret my words. (laughs) Well, interesting you would say that. Because we'll see, as we move into the latter chapters of Job, he came to regret many of the things he said. But Scott, no need to worry. Oh, good. First, what kind of literature is Job? Oh, I do know that. It's wisdom literature, like Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. Correct. And it is identified as wisdom literature, not only because of its subject matter, but because of the form most of the book is written in, which is poetry. Poetry, yes, Hebrew poetry. And that form is evident in most translations by the way the type is set. The poetic verses each have two distinct lines, and the standard technique used in Hebrew poetry is called synonymous parallelism. Now, that's a big word, (laughs) but it's easy to explain. Each verse will have two statements that have parallel meanings. So the meanings rhyme instead of the sound rhyming. Well, that's one way to put it. But, you know, actually, a lot of the Hebrew, we don't see it in English, but a lot of the Hebrew rhymes as well. Oh, okay. But anyway, the words will be different in those two phrases, but will have similar or synonymous meanings. The result of such a technique is the idea being expressed is described more broadly than if just one simple phrase was used to describe it. So here's an example. Scott, read Job 4.17. Can mankind be just before God? 
Can a man be pure before his maker? So there the idea expressed rhetorically is, all of us are sinners. Ah, Job's version of Romans (laughs) 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. A good observation. Thank you. And one of the fascinating things we'll see about Job is how much of what is stated in the book is reflected, even basically repeated throughout the Bible. That's something I'll try and point out as we go through the book. And the fact that you showed a parallel between Job and what was written in the New Testament is indicative of something else we're going to see very often in Job. Job lived before the days of Israel, long before, in fact. Thus, the law was not yet written. And what we'll find is Job's relationship with God has more similarities to New Testament believers than Old Testament believers who lived under the law. Hmm. Now, that doesn't mean Job understood the details of the new covenant in Christ's blood or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit when a person is born again. But we'll see Job's faith in God's mercy at several points in the book. One such example is in Job 9.15. He says, For though I were right, I could not answer. I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. And Job's trust in the Lord is indeed amazing, especially given what he did not know. Yes, for example, his confidence in the bodily resurrection of the dead. And with specific reference to creation in the book of Job, we'll see amazing expressions concerning what Job understood about creation. And that will be one of the major things we focus on as we go through this series. Aptly named Creation in the Book of Job. (laughs) Yes. Now, I want to point out a couple of other things related to the literary form of the book. The fact that it's written mostly in poetic form means we should not take every word literally. Just as we use similes and metaphors in speaking, and especially in poetry, Job does the very same thing. Here's one good example. Scott, read Job 26, 11. The pillars of heaven tremble and are amazed at his rebuke. Now, the critics of the Bible like to then claim, based on those words, the pillars of heaven tremble, that Job is expressing the idea that the sky is actually held up by pillars. In other words, columns. That is, of course, an absurd idea. But their claim is the ignorant people in those ancient times believed that the sky was propped up by physical supports. Therefore, whatever we read in Job or any other ancient book of the Bible is unreliable when it comes to its statements that relate in any way, shape, or form to what we would call scientific information. But that kind of criticism not only ignores the fact that the statements are poetry, It ignores the fact that we also talk that way all the time. Yeah, can you imagine one of those critics watching the horizon in the evening and saying, what a beautiful rotation of the earth so that we cannot see the sun now. (laughs) (laughs) Great example, Scott. Now that specifically is using the language of appearance. But that is another concept, along with the use of metaphor and symbolism, that we must keep in mind as we interpret the meaning of the statements in Job. And so, in the case of those pillars of heaven trembling, Job is referring to the mighty angelic beings trembling at the word of God. They're the pillars of the community, so to speak. But having pointed out we should not take every word literally, that doesn't mean nothing should be taken literally in Job. By that, you mean that everything is symbolic or allegoric. Right. There are many, many statements that are meant to be taken as factual, as written. An example is in Job 38, verse 5. The Lord is talking to Job about the beginning of creation, when he created the earth. And he says, Who set its measurements since you know? 
Now, the idea, and we should understand it to be a fact, is God had measurements. We could say he had specifications. We call them specs in his mind when he formed and established this planet, just as any builder would. And what we keep finding is, as we learn more about the realm of nature, what the Bible says about it is confirmed over and over again. There's a statement I express in my description of how I handle the meaning of Scripture, and it is this. The Bible is not intended by God to be a science textbook, but everything it does say about the material world is accurate. With the proper perspective, we will discover that biblical statements present no necessary contradictions to anything scientists have been able to demonstrate. And part of that proper perspective is acknowledging that some of what the Bible says is written using symbolism or metaphor and the language of appearance. Exactly. And so now, having pointed out the prevalent use of poetry in Job, we must also note that not only is the entire book not written in poetry— Job begins, not in poetry, but in prose. That is, Job starts out in the narrative form. And the sense is, the entire book is an historical narrative of events that happened in Job's life. And embedded within that narrative is the poetic wisdom literature used to relate the conversations, (laughs) which become debates. All of these debates, all of this going back and forth between Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and Job actually is written in this poetic form. But like I said, the book really is an historical narrative with poetry embedded in it. So between Job and his friends, we see all this wisdom literature. So to show this, let's read how the book begins. Scott, we're going to read Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Go ahead and start. Okay, once upon a time... Uh, Scott, I don't think it starts quite like that. Well, it's very close. (laughs) That's true, but let's stick to the script, as they say. Oh, all right. Job 1.1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all men of the East. And his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And it came about, when the days of feasting had completed their cycle, that Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So that ends verse 5. And a couple things to note. You know, 3,000 camels, that would be the equivalent of 3,000 trucks in our day (laughs) and age. I mean, that was what they used, you know, for caravanning, for shipping things around. A truck of 3,000 is pretty hefty. And that would just demonstrate the kind of wealth that Job possessed. And 500 yoke of oxen, that's pears, right? Exactly. Very good. So 500 tractors (laughs) or tillers or whatever. (laughs) Something like that. (laughs) So notice all the cultural references and detail in what we've read. Where Job lived, the kinds and numbers of livestock, and a careful description of his character. I am impressed with how careful Job was to intercede for his children. Mm. He obviously loved them very much. 
And as it said, he feared God, so he made sure that if any offense against God was made, Job made payment for it. Indeed. And let's remember when he loses his children that we can see from what he did for them, he obviously loved them very much. It was just had to have been devastating. So in any event, it's important to realize uh, one more thing. Man did use animal sacrifices to make payment, something that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross has made pointless. But in that day, the New Testament practice of believers trusting the sacrifice of Christ was not in place. Still, we can see a New Testament practice being carried out in those verses we read. Realize that Job was not a priest, according to the law, and yet he offered burnt offerings. So what kind of priest was he? Well, I would say he had the privilege of being the kind of priest New Testament believers have today. As it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 and 9, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And verse 9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that's not what I say. That's what scripture says.